This week on WealthTrack, financial thought leader James Grant on trends in debt, inflation, and interest rates. Interest rates are at the at, at ground level, at, at lawn level, and, uh, and so we, we see the manifestations of inflation. We see it. I th- see. I think we see it in the morality of our public finances. I think we see it on the balance sheets of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York is leveraged 300 and some times to one. The editor of Grant's Interest Rate Observer this week on Consuelo Mack WealthTrack. Funding provided by ClearBridge Investments, Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, First Eagle Investment Management, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, and Strategus Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. It can take a long time for a bubble to burst. Four years ago in 2017, Grant's Interest Rate Observer, a highly regarded financial newsletter, wrote an article about the now infamous China Evergrande Group. Back then it was anything but a familiar name, except in China and among some institutional investors. The article was titled Ever Higher as Grants published a chart showing the extraordinary rise in China Evergrande's stock price on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange that spring. As Grants noted then, we call the attention of the readers of Grants to this situation because in the first place, everything about Evergrande is incredible. The board of directors in 2016 earned $46.5 million, J.P. Morgan reports. And secondly, because we suspect that the company will one day become proverbial like Bank of United States or Hindenburg. We'll fast forward to 2021 and indeed Evergrande, once the world's most valuable property stock, has become famous as the world's most heavily indebted property company with an estimated $300 billion in debt. It also could become Asia's largest bankruptcy as China's government seems less and less likely to come to the rescue. Well, why should U.S. investors care? What, if any, significance does it have outside of China? That is where financial thought leader, journalist, sleuth, and historian James Grant comes in. Grant is the founder and editor of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, a twice-monthly journal about all interest-sensitive investments, which pretty much covers the waterfront. It is considered a must-read by professional investors at leading hedge funds, private equity, and investment firms. Grant is also the author of nine books, including several financial histories. One particularly relevant to the Evergrande situation is Money of the Mind, Borrowing and Lending in America from the Civil War to Michael Milken. It's about the forces that led up to the credit binge of the 1980s, one of America's biggest speculative booms at that time. I started today's discussion with Evergrande, why it warranted Grant's readers' attention back in 2017 and what it represents now. Evergrande, uh, over-leveraged, preposterously, uh, uh, unnecessarily diversified. The guy who ran it looked like, uh, seemed as if he were like one Jeff Bezos and about four Elon Musks. An amazing ambition, which was fine, but uh, the ambition was to build apartment buildings, um, uh, many of which would remain unoccupied. They were for speculative purposes and not for dwelling. The stock was uh, resembled uh, as we could, as we imagined, uh, kind of the, the Bank of United States from 1930, that one that didn't do well, and then, or maybe the, the airship Hindenburg or some looming disaster. And needless to say, this was not the time to have said that. Uh, like six months ago would have been good, but the stock went straight up. Also, the uh, Evergrande was, in, was, uh, uh, was characteristic of uh, 
of the Chinese economy broadly. I mean, the Chinese economy is, is enormously uh, levered. Uh, uh, here's an amazing statistic that uh, uh, Chinese uh, banking assets represent something like 53% of the estimate for 2017 world GDP, not Chinese world GDP, but world GDP, slightly more than half of world GDP. Wow. That was in 2017. No, well, this is right now. Oh, right now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in 2017, Chinese banking assets were also, you know, uh, fantastically large in relation to everything, including the world. So this seemed to us the perfect uh, model of what was wrong with China and, and uh, what's at risk with respect to China. What's its significance now? I mean, you kind of saw this coming. You figured it would have to happen, yeah. but, but now what? Something like 22% of uh, Chinese residential real estate is unoccupied. And again, Evergrande is, is certainly worrisome enough in its own right, uh, but more so as indicative of the state of overleverage uh, and uh, rampant speculation uh, that characterizes and uh, infuses the vast Chinese real estate business. You know, the, uh, the Chinese economy, to an important extent, is driven by real estate speculation. Local government finance uh, earns much of its tax take on land sales. So uh, Evergrande, again, is a thing in itself, and then it is a, a symbol besides, and both are worrisome. Do you think it's going to be um, basically isolated within China, or does it have greater ramifications? Um, I'm in the greater ramification camp. Not you so are. much. Be, yes, not be so much because of the uh, of the dollar-denominated debt. It's a, right. a small portion of Evergrande's overall liabilities, but again, be, because uh, uh, it uh, speaks to the real estate speculative development model that is at the very center of the second largest economy in the world. And uh, President Xi, the eternal president of now the People's Republic of China, is lowering the boom on, uh, on enterprise uh, broadly right. in China and on finance particularly. And Evergrande's uh, failure or near failure, depending how it plays out, will not uh, uh, brighten his mood. Describe the forces that are driving this you know, over leverage that we're seeing now as a global phenomenon. You know, we, we live in a most remarkable time. Um, uh, this year, Consuelo marks uh, two important financial anniversaries. One is the 50th anniversary of the abrogation of Bretton Woods. That's President Nixon preempting the great uh, horse opera Bonanza in 1971, August 15, 1971, and saying that henceforth the dollar would be a piece of paper and not exchangeable into gold at the previously uh, uh, lawful rate of $35 to the ounce. So that was one right. anniversary. That's, uh, we've had that one, 50th. Mm -hmm. And we are now about ready to mark some of this, the 40th anniversary of the peaking of bond yields in 1981. So bond yields have been falling for 40 years, and the dollar has been increasingly uh, plentiful, shall we call it, uh, owing to its detachment from its golden anchor. This is the 50th year of that separation. What characterizes our finance in this country and broadly the world over is a lot of paper money, a lot of liberality in lending and borrowing it, and uh, interest rates that are so tiny that it seems as if one could accumulate debt more or less uh, without uh, a worry. So this is the, this, that's the broad backdrop of where we are. 
How concerned are you about the amount of debt that you're seeing in this country and globally, and what does it portend for bondholders? Well, this is, Consuelo, it's such a great question, and it's such an interesting and paradoxical fact that uh, the more debt we have seen, the more better <laughs> it has become for the bondholders. Uh, the U.S. reached its first trillion dollars in sovereign debt in, I think, about 1981, if memory serves, which it infrequently does. And today we're up to, what, uh, 28 or something? Is it 28 trillion in government, U.S. About, government debt? Yeah, yeah that's about then. That's, that's, that's the gross course. debt, yeah. And um, very gross. Um, so, uh, so the move from one trillion to, let's call it 28 trillion, has been accompanied in the decline of long bond yields from 15% to 2%. So a visitor from Mars would be hard pressed to understand why a lot why? of debt is bad <laughs> for bond prices or interest rates. <laughs> so that's, that's been the, uh, the perplexing and most interesting paradox in our, we can agree, state of over leverage, is that up until this point, it's kind of been more than okay, right? But I think common sense tells you that uh, a lot of debt is fine and unobjectionable until such time um, as, the, uh, as the holders of that debt decline to roll it over and buy some more, or until such time as the borrower finds it inexpedient to pay the principal and interest. Yes, and it, inexpediency could be um, you know, encouraged uh, by rising interest rates, right? Oh, yes. Because suddenly yeah. it becomes very expensive to finance and carry that debt. Right, which so we, we have been speaking with regard to Evergrande, there's this credit risk, right? There's the, uh, the risk of the, of the credit worthiness of the, of the borrower. Uh, with regard to U.S. Treasuries, uh, the, the looming risk is, is interest rate risk uh, as that risk is derived from inflation and the expectations for the same. So in the past couple of days, as we're talking now, uh, interest rates have most unexpectedly, on uh, the 10-year treasury, have gone from 125 or one and a quarter cent to 145 or so, 20 whole basis points up, which is, it's, it seems like nothing, but it has been enough to rattle a lot of people. What's going on? Right. And uh, what may be going on is an inflation that uh, is proving more persistent than transitory. That's what may be going on. The outcome of this you know, paradox we've been talking about, does it all rest in the lapse of the FOMC in, with Fed officials? That too is interesting. The Fed seems to be under the impression that it is in charge of events. Right. But Consuelo, my uh, <laughs> kind of uh, subversive idea is that events are or will be increasingly in charge of the Fed. There's a huge generation gap. I mean, everywhere, of course, perennially there is. You know, the young people just will not stop walking on the lawn. Uh, but on Wall Street, there's an interesting generation gap open between those who, uh, formerly young, have the still most vivid recollections of the inflation of the 70s, which, by the way, did not start in the 70s. It got up and running in 1965. And by 1967, William Chesney Martin said that the horse of inflation is out of the barn. So that's one generation. Right, and he was the Fed chair at that time. Yes. Right. Uh, correct. And uh, the younger generation, which many of us would not mind being a part of, <laughs> except for their blindness with respect to this thing that's happening to us now. If you have been in the business 
uh, for the past 40 years, you have seen nothing except falling rates and very little except for a flatlining rate of inflation as measured. So there is general incredulity among the people who are very active on Wall Street now. What is happening? They could, they, huh? They just refuse to credit the possibility that inflation is, as William McChesney Martin, the former chairman says, the horse of inflation, said he, in the fourth quarter of 1967, four years before price controls came in, the horse of inflation is out of the barn. And uh, that may or may not be true, but it's a possibility. Right. So if, if, if you were to look back to the 1960s, uh, before the horse of inflation got out of the barn, I mean, you know, it's, it's like asking a baseball analogy, you know, what inning are we in? I would say that a Fed that is doubling its balance sheet in 18 months, that a treasury that is issuing trillions of dollars of debt, the proceeds of which are paying people not to work, the breakdown in supply chains, the constellation of these episodes and phenomena make me wonder, what did you expect you know, world about inflation? <laughs> I don't know, but, but there is a great debate and formidable intellects are on the other side of this argument. And I have been arguing the inflation side for more years than I will confess to the viewers of WealthTrack. I have been R-O-N-G and I am still not... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the, the, one of the things about inflation is nobody, it's unpredictable. It just happens, you know. Then. Well, no, 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 Jim. It, it, it didn't just happen. Well, it happened. I mean, it was just what you said. What did you expect? <laughs> it has been creeping was, up on us for a long time. You've let, been let, writing let, about it for uh, a long I time. I know. Let, let, me, let me try to explain myself a little bit. Yeah. In, the, in, the, in 1965, uh, suddenly at a 1% rate, becomes a two and a half, I forget the number, a two and a half or three percent rate. Now, inflation in 1960, 61, 62, 63, and 64 have been running at less than two percent, about. Less than the rate at which the Fed would now panic. When I say it's unpredictable, nobody issued a press release and there were none of the excesses then evident that are so much on our front pages now, and yet inflation popped and, pers and, pers and persisted and accelerated for the next 15 years. Right. And yet, the history of this is very tricky, and dogmatism is a very hard thing to sustain in this particular period of ours when everything is unexpected. For example, the economy is snapping back such that personal income is up in the year of a pandemic. <laughs> Jim, you wrote uh, a recent lead article in Grants um, titled uh, true, a, The True Measure of Inflation. What is the true measure of inflation? I think at, at one important level, inflation is a moral issue. It is uh, the underlying moral problem with inflation is something about something for nothing. It is a form of theft, it is a form of uh, unlegislated tax. Okay, so that's one aspect of inflation. Another inflation aspect of it is the, is the intuitive phenomenon of uh, of redundancy of dollars. There's too many. I mean, there's an obscure Fed function called the reverse repo operation. Right. And, and, and we can simplify it. What it does is soak up unwanted dollars from money market mutual funds and banks, dollars that can't find a home in the money market because there's no demand for it because there are simply too many of these green pieces of paper. There's a trillion 300,000 every day seeking refuge in the Fed. So that's a measure. Wow. It's a yeah. measure of the redundancy of money, right? Right. 
And then in, there is this that's money inflation. Right. And Plain then there's and a, this statistical rep representation inflation that we know is a CPI, right? And 30% of that is, uh, is housing costs. It's, it's, it's the cost of shelter. It's not house prices, a very important distinction. House prices are up like 18% year over year. But that too isn't. How can that, how can that not be inflation? You know, the interest rates are at the at, at ground level, at, at lawn level. And so we, we see the manifestations of inflation. We see it, I th see, I think we see it in the morality of our public finances. I think we see it on the balance sheets of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York is leveraged 300 and some times to one. There's four and a quarter trillion dollars worth of assets. There is 13 and a half billion of capital. That is scary. Well, no, and, yes and, and no. And the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, I mean, you know, that's... Well, it's scary, like except the, the, Treasury, you know, the, Treasury, the Treasury backs it up. See, so the, yeah. so, the, so the Fed is unanchored. Therefore, it's undisciplined. Therefore, it is managed like a, an over-endowed economics department at some university. It's not, it's not a banking institution as it ought to be. It's, it's, I'm getting, this is sermonizing now. But, no, no, but, but it isn't. I mean, and that's, that's new in this era. Yes. That would not have been the Correct. case. Correct. That is right, new. Under the, Volcker and, right, it's, this is a whole new yeah. ballgame, which, you, which you've written about. I want to nail down inflation. I know it's really easy for you to do, Jim. Um, so inflation, how real a threat is it? And, and how does the interplay between, you know, 4,000-year lows in interest rates and rising inflation, I mean, how does that work? Um, as far as the financial markets are concerned, as far as the impact on the bond market? Well, inflation is the greatest single risk uh, that the viewers of WealthTrack confront. And it's not just that they're going to be skinned alive at, uh, at the grocery store. It is that interest rates are key determinants in the valuation of every single earning asset, stocks, bonds, real estate. Right? So interest rates discount future cash flows. They help us calibrate credit risk and set investment hurdle rates. They are the critical prices in capitalism, and they have been suppressed. They are suppressed by central bank action. So to a degree, an important degree, the valuation of everything in the portfolio of your viewers hangs by the thread of the lowest interest rates in 4,000 years, rates mm -hmm. which are not Anything, I say I, but the product of central bank manipulation to the downside. So now what changes the structure of rates, what lifts them, um, could be, again, could be, not to, not to dogmatize because it's unseemly, uh, what that could be is, is an inflation that persists, that frightens the Fed, that it, it should frighten the Fed, and they start to, to move rates up. And stock prices fall, and the Fed says, oh. the Fed is a very low threshold of financial pain. So what then? Rising rates of inflation and a falling stock market. Right, what then? Yeah, so this is, this is, this is a whole new panorama of possibilities. It's quite mm -hmm. exciting uh, to think about. It's a little bit, it's, it's better to think about than to sleep on. Um, but uh, this is the kind of thing that I think people ought to be thinking about, is, is what happens when the unscripted occurs, the unscripted in this case being uh, a rate of inflation that rises and persists and does not yield uh, to the wishes and the press conference verbiage of the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board. Right. At, at some point, it gets bigger than they are. <laughs> at some point.
at, at some point, again, at, at some point, they don't control events. In, in the 1970s, uh, the, the, the Fed was the mercy of Mr. Market, especially Mr. Currency Market. Why, why hasn't gold responded? Gold is a, is a, is a deep disappointment to its current fans. Uh, for background, uh, the price of gold is up 50 times in 50 years. Um, no consuelo, that's, isn't that a cool fact? <laughs> that's a cool fact. Uh, I, I, I you know, put it into context, though. Whereas the S and P 500 is up, like, or however, whatever you want to do. But, go, but gold isn't isn't it's, meant to be a stock. It's inert, right? It is right. non-yielding. Is it meant to be an investment in your point of it's, view, or is it just a store of value? I think it's a store of value. It, you know, okay. what, but 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 one hopes it really goes up like a rocket. <laughs> right. I own for me enough of it, a lot of it, enough, um, and it's deeply frustrating that of all the commodities that one could own, gold is the least responsive to this monetary problem. It is right. I, I, it's inexplicable to me. It, it, okay, it is inexplicable. I was just going to say, is there any rationale for it? It's just the way it is in in current in recent history, because prior to this, it, it would have been going up. It's just what is. I mean, I, I think some of the oxygen in the room of gold has been stolen by the cryptocurrencies, the NFTs. There are other speculative playthings that people, I think, are banking on to protect them against a debauchery of the currency. I think we're disappointed in that. I think cryptocurrencies are not for the ages, if only because there's going to be a better cryptocurrency than the one you own. You know, it just the, hasn't been invented crypt, yet? Or? Crypt, well, cryptocurrency is technology, right? And, yeah, and, um, right. You're right. However clever the ones now in circulation, there's going to be some, you, you know there's going to be something more clever. However, gold is not going to be improved upon as, as an asset. So. What do we do as, in, as investors? What, how, how do we protect ourselves as investors or counter this? I'm going to give you a, a couple of thoughts and a couple of tickers. Uh, one ticker is INFL which is a very well-considered ETF by the Horizons Kinetic people. And it is, as the ticker suggests, it's meant to be a collection of equities that will do well because they have pricing power in a time of inflation. Right. Formal name is Inflation Beneficiaries ETF. Correct. Right. And the other ticker is PFIX, P-F-I-X, which is... Simplify Interest Rate Hedge ETF. Thank you, Consuelo. Yes. <laughs> One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio that would help us in a, you know, a time like this where we're seeing inflation pick up. I pick as my one uh, and only uh, portfolio item for a time of inflation. I pick uh, this underperforming, work-at-home, lazy-bones person called gold, which has refused to conform, perform as it ought, but it, I have every confidence that it will. It is an investment in monetary disorder. I, like, I, I think of it that way more than as an inflation hedge. It is an investment in monetary disorder of which we have a lot. And final question for you, Jim, and that is you told me um, uh, on the phone recently that, that one should invest in something you don't believe in. This is uh, 50 years of experience talking. It's <laughs> Um, it's, it's the, of course, the, the, it's, a, it's a funny way, I hope, of expressing the, uh, the imperative uh, doctrine of diversification. You know, I, I, um, I look back on the things that I knew so well wouldn't work or 
didn't belong in any thoughtful person's portfolio. And, and lo and behold, many of them uh, did just fine, including bonds over the past 40 years. I've been mostly a believer in uh, other things. So um, uh, older, certainly. Wiser uh, is, I guess, a matter for others to determine, but humbler, I hope, after all these years. And, uh, and my expression of my humility before Mr. Market is to own something you think is not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, James Grant. Thanks, Jim, for joining oh, us. Oh, you're welcome, Chris Willis. I thank you. At the close of every wealth truck, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is read Jim Grant's Money of the Mind, Borrowing and Lending in America from the Civil War to Michael Milken. First published in 1992, it's a history of how two long-running trends, the democratization of credit and the socialization of risk, converged in the 1980s to create one of America's greatest speculative booms. As Ron Chernow wrote in his Wall Street Journal review of Money of the Mind, it is a brilliantly eccentric kaleidoscopic tour of our credit lunacy, a fitting epitaph to the credit binge of the 80s. Unfortunately, we are living with the legacy of that credit lunacy today, magnified many times over. One can only hope that understanding how we got here might help us find a way out. I will also add that reading anything Jim Grant writes is an intellectual and literary treat. Well, next week in a WealthTrack exclusive, great investor and small cap stock pioneer Chuck Royce discusses the historic opportunities available in this underrated asset class. In the meantime, in this week's Extra on WealthTrack.com, Jim Grant discusses his latest literary project, a deep dive into 18th century finance through the lives of two brilliant 18th century orators, Edmund Burke and Charles James Fox, who were also perennially broke. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel, Thank you for spending time with us, no matter what the format. Enjoy your weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one. Mm -hmm.